On the 28th of November 1979, an Air New Zealand sightseeing flight TE-901 crashed into the side of Mount Erebus in Antarctica. All 257 passengers and crew on board were instantly killed. At the time here in New Zealand, it seemed like everyone knew someone connected to the tragedy. I knew someone too. Over the years, we've heard a lot of stories about Erebus, the cover-up, the court case, the controversy. But here's some stories you might not know. Hi, I'm Lizzie Oakes, and when I was 10, I lost my nan, Muriel Florence Rose Harrison, to Erebus. 40 years later, I'm a broadcaster, and on this podcast, Erebus Engraved on Our Hearts, I'm speaking with others whose lives have been impacted by the disaster. Episode 11, Towards the Mountain. Sarah Miles lost her papa, Frank, Christmas on the flight. She talks of her recently published book, Towards the Mountain, a story of grief and hope, 40 years on from Erebus, and of how important it is to talk about the things that cause us pain in our lives. Kia ora and welcome to my friend Sarah Miles. Oh, thank you, Lizzie. So good to have you here. Yeah, so good to be here. <laughs> it's just so kind of almost uncanny, um, you and I, the journey that we've had. It's almost slightly parallel. Yep. So we went, going back a couple of years, um, I was doing some research on Erebus, looking at doing a project, and then I went onto Facebook and I thought, oh, I wonder if there's anyone anywhere else doing a, a project on <laughs> on Erebus. So I typed in the word Erebus and something came up, Erebus Sports and something else. And then I came across Sarah Miles Writer and I found that there was this woman in another part of the country starting to write a book about her grandfather, yeah. Frank Christmas. And, you know, today I was thinking about how we came together and so that was how you connected with me. And then I was thinking it was within a few weeks the project on TV3 asked us to do a, a quick interview each. Oh, that's right. We appeared that night. That was two years ago. Oh, wow. So it was. And then one year ago we were together at the meeting, family meeting with the Prime Minister. Yes. And then here we are. Yeah. Um, at well, the 40th commemoration. Yeah. Crazy. So um, what was it like actually when you got that message from me out of the blue? <laughs> um. Well, I, I, it's like um, you're on your own comet, sort of doing your own thing, and then someone taps you on the shoulder and you turn and look to the side and there's someone else that, I don't know, I think it, w- it was very validating. And I thought, oh, maybe I can talk about this and she won't roll her eyes and walk away like some of my friends and family started to mm. do because my whole life became really quite um, enveloped and then yeah I I guess to do the project in such a short period of time you know I I wrote full-time for one year and you really have to dedicate yourself to that um and to have someone else that I could talk about it with who wouldn't get bored it was a blessing (laughs) I feel the same way yeah so yeah you've written this book towards the mountain that you've just had published congratulations thank you and you invited me to the launch and I really wanted to come but you live in the Hawke's Bay yep. and I live in Auckland, so it didn't quite happen, but here we are. So you lost your lovely, did you call him granddad? Papa. Papa. Yep, Papa. Frank Christmas. Yeah, and I spoke with yeah. your auntie in an earlier episode, so I, I I, feel like I've got to know Frank a little bit because mm. you and I have spoken and, and I think that's one of the benefits and I, I, I would imagine you would feel the same of this journey, meeting others who have had similar experience and and hearing their story, that it's actually now not just about your grandparent. No. It's actually 
about the Erebus community, yes. really. Yes, and I, I, when I was writing this and when I speak about the book, you know, I'm very clear that this is just my family's story, but given all the feedback I've had while I was writing and now since it's been published, I know that it's representative of a universal Erebus experience, that everyone had um, the empty chair at the dinner table that very first Christmas in 1979 was so painful for so many people um, that there were gaps in information. And that's really what set me off on the journey. Can we talk about Popper now that my nana has, you know, wife Eileen is dead? And when we talk about it, why are there so many gaps in information? So that was really the, the prompt. But now that the book is out, it's I know it's not just a book. Uh, it's got this own kind of energy with it and it's become I guess like a portal into other families grief stories and that for me was very unexpected for some reason they feel that they can they see themselves in the book or a version of of their life and they connect and then they feel the need to talk about that and they have contacted me Um, and it's a real blessing to receive these stories because they are deeply personal. Um, yeah, but it's also been quite overwhelming for me. I found that very hard um, because I'm a sensitive person. These stories, they really enter into my heart and it's very hard to hold a space where I can try and feel peace and calm and also um, compassion. Mm. Uh, and and then the anger works its way in. And I, I, of course, I always question, is that my anger or is that someone else's? Um, and often it's not mine, uh, but I still feel it because it's what's coming out um, at the time, yeah. So you were three years old, weren't you, mm. when yeah. Papa went on the trip of a lifetime? Yes, yeah. And the story is, I think, that we spent the weekend prior to the 28th of November in New Plymouth, a fam- little family weekend away. So I would have seen him, you know, just before he died. Um, but for me, all, all I really have is is the snapshot memory of the big blue men coming through my grandmother's kitchen door. And as it, that, that was from when I was three years old. Um, and then at the, at the ripe old age of 40, my grandmother died. And as I'm standing at her gravesite, there were a few triggers in me and that that picture came rushing back into my memory and very strong emotions. And it's the emotions that I hadn't connected in with the same. I'd kept them obviously very far in the distance because they're painful. And I'm at Nana's grave site. There's another opportunity for grief. Um, grief doesn't always have to be painful, but it does have to be experienced. Otherwise we hold on to that and it actually it doesn't do us any good. Um, so I'm there and my daughter reads the headstone and she's very proud because she's quite small and she's learning to read and she reads that here lies Frank Christmas died as a result of an air accident on Mount Erebus, Antarctica and she points at Mount Taranaki in the background and she says is that the mountain your papa died on and it's of course in an innocent child voice and the whole gathered crowd can hear and what comes into me is feelings of shame and grief and doesn't she know we don't talk about this and having been through my own counselling I I was able to step back for a moment and observe all these feelings I was having as my husband's gently talking to her about what actually happened and no that's Mount Taranaki 
And I thought, gosh, there's a lot of unresolved stuff here. And I started to look around the cemetery. I could see my mum and her two sisters and her brother. And I realised for them that this was a reliving of my grandfather's funeral. And none of them remembered his funeral. And it was because of the trauma. So here we are in another moment of grief. And it's almost like a bowling ball that's dropped into a sheet. No matter how taut you hold it, it still has this weight and impression and you, you can't ignore it. And and that's really what, what I was observing around the gravesite that day. And I felt it in me. And I didn't understand why. I didn't know it affected me that much. Yeah. So then what happened that you started writing your book? Oh, well, then uh, curiosity kills the cat, they say. Um, I went home and I Googled his name and wow. I found, yeah, that, I guess that's what you do these days. Yep. And I found um, a file at Archives New Zealand and because he was a passenger on a flight that became part of a Royal Commission of Inquiry, there was a coroner's file and they were all kept in the same part, I guess, of archives. And I asked for the details and I had to get an immediate family member's permission because I'm not immediate, I'm a granddaughter. So mum was able to do that for me. And I kind of, I laugh now when I think about it, I was so naive. I asked for this file to come and then they, when they finally gave me permission, they said, please open it in front of family members because it can be traumatic. And I thought, oh, look, you know, he's dead. I know he's dead. It'll be all right. And I thought, and there's no way I'm going to open it in front of my family because it's a point of trauma for them. So I'll just, I'll just read it. And of course, in it are some very um, strong descriptions about what happened to his physical body, but also things like his ticket, it has his name on it. Um, and that was evidence that they needed to prove he was on the flight. And that was, it, it's just seeing his name written down. And, you know, it's quite a big thing, really. And the date that was bought, yeah. Mm. Is that available for every one of us? Absolutely. Really? So, it, so we could we could write to yes, Archives New there's Zealand. There's even an easier way. Um, the New Zealand Police yeah. College in uh, Porirua have a museum and the director of the police museum has access to some of that information. Wow. Um, and if family members, so it's only for family members, they can contact the New Zealand Police Museum the online they have an Official Information Act form and they fill it out saying who they are and what they'd like and they will be given, you know, if they give the name of their relative, they can find out um, their temporary identification number, which is a body number, and from that they can then go to um, work out on the police grid where on the mountain their loved one's body was found. And I think the grid for me, if I was to be honest, given all the lack of information around Erebus, when I first saw that grid and I had it explained to me, and that was by Stuart Layton, who was the police officer that was one in the team that recovered Frank's body, and I really got the sense of connection to Antarctica, to his body, to the men that did this horrible work of recovering his body, and to the pain that they went through, and then the pain that my family were going through, it was a very physical, tangible thing. And I could see he was lying next to about 18 other people. And so there they were together. And it just really grounded it in something um, beautiful. Um, I th maybe I'll read something out. Is that all right? Um, I'd love you to do that, Sarah. It's the concept of Turanga Waiwai. And 
So traditionally, this word is talks about your marae and the place where you stand. But for someone like me, a Pākehā New Zealander, and I, I know there are others now that, that are ex, you know, even TED Talks in Christchurch and they're exploring the new ways that we look at the word tūranga waiwai, the place of belonging. Um, and for me, I always wondered why I felt so connected to Antarctica. So yes, you know, Frank died there, but why did I feel almost this invisible string from my heart or my gut to this cold continent that I've never been to? And I started to ask people that I knew, what, what did they understand about that? And one friend, a Māori friend, said to me, oh, and my family, that's Tūranga Waiwai, and we, we call it first breath, last breath. And so I decided to write about that. And this is what I came up with. <coughs> I once heard that there is hardly any new snowfall in Antarctica, that the continent is too dry, a desert really, so each new snowstorm is just old snow being transported to another place. I think of Frank's last breath as it was pushed from his lungs, as it turned to frost and fell to the ground. If these stories of Antarctic snowfall are true, then Frank's breath still survives somewhere on this windswept frozen desert in a place I cannot visit. As do all their breaths. 257 New Zealanders and foreigners lost their lives and they all belong now to that continent and for some reason we all have a connection and a link to a place that we've never been and no one has really acknowledged that until now and I don't know where the inspiration came from for me but it felt like a very worthy and honest and heartfelt thing to say and so when someone says oh you talk about your grandfather, but that's not my story. My story's different. I know that. I know that the details of our lives are very different. But at the heart of it is someone that we loved who died with 256 others. And that is painful. Yeah. And I guess the next step through the pain, when we've got the grief, the next step is connection. Mm. And through connection and communion, I call it communion, that is the coming together of people with a shared history. Mm. And no government, no airline can ever take that away from us. And it, that's why it's important to approach each other with compassion and love because our stories are different, but at the heart they're all the same. I'm partway through your book and it's amazing. And I, I'm not just saying that because you're my friend. I mean, it's very detailed, and uh, but it's... But it's also really easy to read. But as mm. I was reading the book, I just thought, how did she do this? Because I found my journey difficult with Erebus. As you know, I, I initially wrote a short film yet to be made. And then I, and I've travelled down this, this pathway of creating this podcast, mm. which, um, you know, I've shared some of my story, but it hasn't. It's about people collectively, what you were talking about, a shared experience coming yeah. together. And that has made Erebus this bigger thing to me. But for you, um, going and talking to the police who actually worked on the ice and recovered your pop's body, I mean, and showed you the grid and, and receiving that information in the package, I'm just like, how did she do that? Because I just actually don't think I could. Wow. Here's how I see it. I'm born in a family at a certain time in history 
and I've got certain experiences that um, that that get me to here in my in my forty plus years, and I have certain skills, and inside of me also is a a desire to know more and to question, and so it all just comes together. But I didn't do it by myself. Um, there are people like you that I connected with that would share things, and I go, okay, they're on the same path. I'm not alone. Um, I also sought the help of a therapist because when you dive into grief, it's not just about Frank. This is not just about my grandfather who died. It's also about any other point of grief that comes up in your life. And all of those things come up, like here we are at the 40th anniversary, and all of those points of grief come up for all of us. So it might be a lost relationship or miscarriages or a lost job or an opportunity that you didn't take, or that you did take and it didn't work out. Um, For me, it also brought up my parents' separation because that was a point of grief in my life. Um, And friendships that had fallen by the by, and um, things I wanted to do with my life that I haven't done yet, or that I wish I'd said yes to. And so grief doesn't exist in its own. They're not pockets of grief. It is just this collective energy that it is inside of you, and it doesn't always rear its head. But when you do start, um, I love and the author Anne Pratchett says, "Dive into the well," and that's what I did. I, I knew that I had to do that to really get into this. And I, it's like imagining in my mind that I am, you know, six years old, ten years old, fifteen, and I go back into those times and I think, "What was I doing at ten? Had my Walkman. I was listening to Annie Lennox and Bon Jovi." I can see myself with my cousins and I just, it starts to build in my mind and then the feelings come in and then the words come and and it's just opening yourself up to creativity, I guess. And, And I'm a communicator. And so the way that that happens is through words. You know, as you're talking and, um, I'm reminded, I don't know if it was in the last year in New Zealand here, they launched that number 1737 need to talk. Yeah. As you're talking, I'm thinking it's good to talk. Like yeah. Erebus, like what you're talking about, is it's a it's a universal story of loss. Like mm. you're saying, you're highlighting people with breakdowns of relationships or miscarriages. That is actually about loss, but to recover from loss and to journey from loss, you actually need to talk about it. You actually... You actually need to bring it out of the darkness of your heart yeah. and bring it into the light, to a shared space for others to hear, to acknowledge, uh, for them to recognise what you're saying and to be understood. Mm. And I think for so many people from from those who lost loved ones in Erebus, they didn't actually experience that. No, that's the big hurdle, I think. 1979, there was the attitude of harden up, son. So that's what the police, the mountaineers were told. That's a version of what my family was told. They didn't get to see a body. Um, someone advised them against that. And that was the culture of the time. But it meant that there was another hurdle in their grief. And um, my, my dad actually told me uh, last week, he said, it wasn't until I heard you speaking about this that I realised I really missed Frank. I really miss him. And I and he got really emotional and he, and he said, I didn't really get the chance to miss him because I just had to keep going because that's what we did. And he became, I guess, the man of the house now. And he was at, at my grandmother's for the month of December and he was opening the door and talking to the police and managing all of that. And so he didn't get the chance to grieve. And neither did Frank's children. My aunt had to go to work the next day. That's just what you did. 
off you go, off to work and just keep going, keep going. Um, and sometimes that energy is good because it gets us out of a stuck place, but it also stops us acknowledging what's happened. And something that I learned about this, so my way of dealing with this was to um, dive into it and then to share it. And I realised as I'm listening to the men who were part of the recovery team or the um, identification team, I realised that they haven't really told these stories, some of them, before, and they've received a lot of validation by telling me. And I don't know why, but it has to do, again, with communica- uh, connection and communion and, and val- validating. And when you said before about, about bringing this story out of the darkness, that's, I think that's how we have to address the shame that exists around Erebus. And it's not shame that we did to ourselves. This is something that really was part of the culture and the lack of decent leadership in 1979. And so now we get the choice. Are we going to continue to to stay in this way or are we going to stand proud and connect with the person next to us and talk about it? And I know because of what we're seeing now with the memorial and the um, commemorations at Government House, as we speak out about it, so then does the nation. And there is misinformation out there. So it's up to us to get it right and to help people understand. And shame only exists in darkness. So if you shine a light on that, then it cannot exist. And I don't feel ashamed of my grandfather. I feel really proud of him. And and I see him in me and in my kids and um, and in, you know, my family members. And I think it's so beautiful. Mm. And I know he will be so incredibly proud of you and what you've done. Yeah, thanks. I, I thought I would, I guess I, I was expecting to feel him around me a lot more, but it was it's taken until, I guess, this week. And I, there was a part of me that's still the three-year-old girl that's frightened and wonders what's going on and a lot of media attention, families getting in touch, which is lovely. Um, but at the same time, it brings up the loss of control and the anxiety, and I think... You know, it's okay, little Sarah. It's okay now. I've got you. And and that's what we have to do for each other because no one else is going to do that for us. Thanks for listening to this episode of Erebus Engraved on Our Hearts. I'm Lizzie Oakes. Thanks to Scott Gillen, my audio engineer, and to Rima Media for their support. On the 28th of November 2019, 40 years on since the airline disaster, The Erebus families finally received an official apology from the government and in New Zealand. But what exactly does that apology mean to family members? Find out in the next episode of Erebus Engraved on Our Hearts. To subscribe, go to Erebus Engraved on Our Hearts on iTunes, Spotify or erebusengravedonourhearts.com.